welcome to the Executive Brain, focused on the self-actualization of today's executive leaders through science and stories. I'm your host, Grinnell Connor. This week's episode continues on our segment of Techniques from Coaches. Rather than from a coach, however, a highly gifted neuroscientist will speak about how the brain of leaders is a bit different. What can the brain tell us about people who are found to be in leadership positions and are found to take up the responsibilities for people outside of themselves? I am delighted to present our special guest this week, Leighton Hinckley, Chief Translational Scientist in the Biomagnetic Imaging Lab and Director of the NeuroSkunk Works Project Lab both in the Department of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging at UC San Francisco. <laughs> That's a bit of a tongue twister, but I'm really happy to have you here on Executive Brain. Yeah, it's great to be here, man. It's been a while. It's been a while. That's right. So walk me through a day in your shoes. What does your job consist of? What does it look like? Okay. Uh, so the main area of research in our lab is in what's called translational neuroscience. Now, it's kind of a fancy term, but what it basically means is we use advances in basic science to kind of further our understanding of neurological and psychiatric disorders, kind of the brain mechanisms behind uh, different conditions. And uh, the whole point is to use that advanced understanding to further the diagnosis and treatment of those conditions. We specialize in a lot of non-invasive brain imaging techniques like magnetic resonance imaging or MRI, uh, techniques like magnetoencephalography or MEG. And those are all non-invasive brain imaging measures that allow us to study the structure and function in the brain in order to understand how they uh, break down and become impaired in different conditions. The goal of those techniques is to stimulate the brain non-invasively. So the classic way that you would stimulate the brain is you'd perform a craniotomy, remove the skull, put in an electrode or an electrode grid, and stimulate the brain that way. And while that's a great approach, there's you know a lot of uh, a lot of techniques and a lot of interventions that uh, gold standard interventions that work on that approach. It, they're kind of messy in the fact that you have to crack open the skull. So we have a lot of techniques at our disposal to actually stimulate the brain non-invasively. And we use a lot of those in the lab as well. We also have a series of basic science projects in the lab to understand uh, features of cognition and how they work in the brain. Cognitive features like learning and memory and executive abilities. Uh, understanding how those work in a more general perspective. So. One of our motivations for understanding how cognitive processes work in the brain more generally is to understand and further refine our, our understanding of those conditions as well. So the overall goal in the lab and the overall goal of our research is to kind of synthesize all these processes, to use non-invasive imaging and studies in basic science to understand how the brain works in different conditions and identify potential targets for treatment that we could further down the line, potentially rehabilitate with neuromodulatory neurostimulation techniques. So a lot of the work I do is kind of structured around uh, directing those projects and working with uh, the neurologists and psychiatrists that uh, treat people with these disorders, working with uh, some of the people who do methods development. That's another thing my lab specializes in is, is software to analyze this data. 
in order to kind of uh, drive these studies. And it's a really exciting time to be in neuroscience because at the hardware level, at the software level, at the clinical level, we're, we're really on fire and, and really moving forward with understanding how all of this works. We still have much to understand about the brain, and it's very delicate, and it's very expensive, and yet there's so much that's to be known about it, but our tools are getting better to know it. So the analogy that I see with us today and the brain is kind of like a caveman with a Ferrari. Like we want to know how it works, how does it go so fast? How does it operate? Why is it so beautiful? How complex is it? But we don't want to cut it open. We don't want to make a mutilation out of it. We still need to study it without destroying it. And then when something goes wrong, we actually find out more about how it works. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's why a lot of uh, studies on clinical populations can be very important, not just with respect to helping the people who suffer from those conditions, but by understanding how the brain works more generally. So yeah, the, the caveman Ferrari uh, analogy is very apt. Some people are probably more Ferraris than others, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one. Okay, great. I know that you a couple of weeks ago went to Philadelphia, I believe, for a neuroscience meeting. That's right. Can you please describe to me what you saw? And I understand that you have more of an idea now with the neuroimaging technology and where we're headed with this. Yeah, that was a it was a great meeting. So it's a meeting specifically for people who are in the field of uh, magnetoencephalography or MEG. Uh, it's a meeting that's held every other year. Usually, all the experts around the world gather and talk about advancements in the hardware and software behind MEG and how that's being applied to you know, understand brain function and brain disorders. Uh, So MEG is a really exciting technique. It's one of the techniques that we specialize in in my lab. Uh, The way it works is it measures magnetic fields that are generated from electrical activity in the brain. So whenever you have an electrical current following the right-hand rule of physics, you have a magnetic field that's generated around it. So what this MEG technique measures are the tiny magnetic fields that are generated by brain activity. And these are extraordinarily small magnetic fields, like up to half a dozen orders of magnitude weaker than the Earth's magnetic field. So they require really expensive, really sensitive detectors called magnetometers. Uh, They're superconducting detectors, so they require to be bathed in liquid helium. They need to be fixed inside an array, inside an imaging machine. They need to be housed in a magnetically shielded room. And while that technique is it's great, it's high fidelity, it's very expensive. These machines will cost sometimes several millions of dollars, and the upkeep is very expensive too. It will cost thousands and thousands of dollars a year. So what was exciting at this meeting was that there have been a lot of advancements in the technology behind these devices that make them a little bit more accessible. So there's an emerging technology uh, that's under development called optically pumped magnetometers, or OPMs. Now, the cool thing about these devices is that they don't require a lot of the upkeep costs that are associated with traditional MEG. They don't need to be kept at a very low temperature. They're not susceptible, as susceptible to movement artifacts as a classic MEG machine. Since they don't need to be fixed inside of an imaging machine, they could just be attached to the scalp, and you can measure brain activity that way. So it's a bit of a long road until these types of devices come to market, especially as kind of like a biomedical application. 
one of the exciting things about them is they make the technology a little bit more accessible to the average scientist. The classic MEG machines are usually housed in large research institutions like UC San Francisco, but these OPMs aren't as expensive, they can be custom built, and I really think they're going to open the field of neuroscience and really make using these devices more accessible for the average scientist, and so that's really exciting. They're also not as susceptible to movement artifact. In, in brain imaging, if your subject moves around a lot, it can create blur in the signal, and that can make it challenging to study certain conditions like hyperkinetic movement disorders, like Parkinson's disease. So these OPMs can be fixed to the scalp and make it a lot easier to study people with movement disorders. So I think in the next five to 10 years tops, these are gonna be a, a very revolutionary way to study the brain. And it's, it's really representative of where neuroimaging and neuroscience is right now, is that the technology is just in rapid development. And the more the technology develops, the more we can look at the brain in a finer detail. Well, yeah, not only for movement disorders, but with OPMs, it seems like we will be able to study people in movement as well. We used to need to study a skier by imagining skiing. Now we can get a skier who can ski. Yeah, exactly. It, it certainly opens up the field toward that direction. In fact, there were a couple papers published recently where the participants were doing things like playing ping pong and drinking tea, and that's was forbidden in neuroimaging before. So it kind of really opens up the possibility of not only studying movement disorders, but you know, is going to contribute greatly to the neuroscience of kinesiology and just understanding how movement and motor control works in the brain more generally. That's beautiful. I originally brought you on to this show, Executive Brain LinkedIn, because of the discussion that we had on neuroscience and executive leadership. I know that you said that that was a hot research topic in the neuroscience community. So what are we finding with that? That's a good question. So there's been, a, a as you know, a longstanding history in at the behavioral level, in cognitive psychology, trying to understand what makes a good leader. You know, what are this kind of the science of leadership, uh, you know, it's kind of studying the behavioral characteristics and the personality characteristics of people who are productive leaders. And there's different ways to represent that, right? For example, one way is through the ability for somebody to take responsibility for a group of other people. So there's ways to quantify this, and cognitive psychologists will talk about this, things like responsibility aversion. It's a, a measurement in psychology of how willing people are able to take responsibility for others. An ability to choose between a risky or a safe option when making a decision for a group of people in a hypothetical situation. It's these types of measurements that are really easy to study behaviorally and are uh, strong or actually actually weak in leaders. Most leaders are not responsibility averse. Most leaders pursue and will engage in taking responsibility and making decisions for groups of people that they supervise. So where the neuroscience piece plugs in is that we're beginning to understand uh, especially over the past five to ten years, how these types of abilities like responsibility aversion work in the brain and kind of the underlying neurobiological bases of leadership. And there's a lot of research in this area, and it's, it's really just starting to get off the ground. But it allows you to, by kind of understanding how processes like responsibility aversion work, 
you can begin to generate testable hypotheses about how those features work at the neural level in leaders. So for example, there's a working model, a working hypothesis that regions of the right frontal lobe are involved in conceptualizing social interactions and responsibilities with others. So, And there's a, a fair amount of research that shows that the more activity and cohesion you have in that part of the brain, the better your ability to project and predict what social interactions will be like. And that's an important quality of a good leader. Somebody who can direct a group of people is going to be able to see and predict, you know, what their actions are going to look like or be received by the group. So we have a good kind of basic science understanding of what brain regions and what brain mechanisms should be responsible for executive leadership. And we're just beginning to test those hypotheses in brain imaging in leaders specifically. Yeah, and I'm sure there is a lot more than just risk aversion. That may be one area of it. Uh, I certainly have been speaking to many people, coaches, researchers, and executives included, and a lot of the discussion about empathy comes up and skills in social connectivity as well as emotional intelligence and awareness skills. So we'll be able to potentially further the neuroscience research into those aspects in leaders as well, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely, especially since our understanding of how things like empathy and social awareness are further being refined and understood at the neural level, and that kind of sets the stage for interesting series of experiments and interesting theories about how things like empathy play out in leadership perspectives, because you're right, it's not not really classically part empathy is certainly part of a good leader, but usually leaders are measured by their productivity. And uh, it's not really empathy, while it's certainly applicable, isn't typically representative of a good leader, but it should be part of a good leader and, and part of the characteristics of a good leader. So we can examine this on the neural level, and there's a lot of existing models that we can work off of to test this idea of how empathy is related to leadership. So for example, I'm sure you've heard of uh, mere neurons. Of course. Right? Yeah. So those are neurons that are involved in observing the actions of others. So there have been a lot of theories that have come from these studies. Studies were done decades ago where animals, the same neurons would be active if animals were observing the actions of others or doing the action themselves. It sets the stage for models of, of kind of the neurobiological basis of observational learning. And so that's really important. So... Empathy is certainly a piece of that. And so uh, we can start to build models, we can start to test questions about how, if empathy is a core feature of good leadership, good strong leadership, and we know that these mirror neurons play a strong role in observing the reactions and behaviors of other people, well, perhaps there's something unique about the function of mirror neurons in executive leadership, and that those can be modulated in different ways. So it really expands our definition of what we mean by a good leader by including these models in neuroscience and, and models of brain function. Right, and we live in this information age, the, you can call it the fourth industrial revolution, and leaders are becoming more apparent now, visible now. You know, If you think 30 years ago, the CEO of IBM would not be as visible as the CEO of IBM right now. Because of Twitter and Facebook and all these media platforms, as well as how quickly news travels and 
how quickly the market is changing with in relevance to what people are saying or doing. So this visibility is is definitely more in the forefront and is can be sent to us instantly by just a message on our phone and it doesn't even have to be unlocked. Correct. So yeah. the leadership is being much more visible and it's within the public eye. It's under the public eye now. Uh, in shareholders, in people, in consumers, in every different groups of demographics of people and groups of people, so it seems like the understanding of what is making a good leader is is a hot direction, and as as well as what is actually a good leader. And in the current definition of what a good leader is, should we keep that definition? Well, we I think we should certainly refine and expand it, right? And I think there's there's different ways to do that. We're certainly doing it, uh, and it's certainly being done on a behavioral level. You know, a leader, a good leader, while certainly a, a, a productive leader, isn't just a productive leader. There's other features like emotional awareness and empathy that are certainly important when it comes to being a productive leader. So part of that piece is the neurobiological piece. You know, what makes a good leader, potentially with the, the techniques and methods that we have at our disposal can be further refined to include biological pieces. There are could potentially be brain mechanisms or brain networks and functions of different brain regions that would characterize a good leader that are generally going to be associated with a lot of the behavioral features that we already identify in good leaders. Yeah, well that's definitely refreshing for me because I highly respect you as a raw scientist, you know, someone who needs to look at images, someone who needs to look at wavelengths, someone who needs to look at at the actual quantitative measures of what the brain is emitting. And you're saying, well, um, the good leader is also behavioral and there's empathy and there's social awareness involved. So that's yeah. definitely refreshing and humbling. And from that, I actually was wondering uh, if I had to give you a hypothesis question. If I, if, had, if I was your research partner, buddy, and said as a hypothesis, if you had to do a study on emotional intelligence, empathy, and or social awareness, what would be your hypothesis? One of the important things to do in neuroscience isn't just to do a study, but to do a series of studies and to, to kind of look at how these functions work in different ways. And we have a variety of neuroscience, a variety of te- uh, tools and techniques at our disposal to do that. So we could take one of those existing models, right? Like let's say the mirror neuron model, and we would come up with a, let's, let's say that our, our theory is that mirror neurons play a strong role in leadership. Well, we can come up with some sort of experimental design to probe or test the integrity of mirror neurons in leaders. Maybe uh, leaders will have uh, stronger connections in uh, certain parts of the brain that are associated with mirror neurons. Maybe if you perturb the activation of those neurons, it will make somebody a better leader. Or maybe uh, just those regions have higher fidelity or stronger signal during processing. So there's a variety of ways you can test it. And it's important to look at it in science from different angles. It's called establishing a set of converging operations where you're operationally defining something like leadership or how empathy plays a role in leadership and looking at it in a variety of different ways. I think it's also really important, and one of the things that we do in neuroscience is to use clinical disorders as templates for general brain function. It's called a a reverse translational science where we start with a, a clinical population that may have some sort of impairment 
and understand how the brain works as that impairment being representative of something that's missing, some sort of brain function or ability that may be impoverished in that population. So if you were to look at people who are don't like taking responsibility, kind of like the way I was in high school, that sort of thing, you know, and, and looking at how they compare against leaders. You know, you can identify the brain structures and mechanisms that are involved with that ability, you know, in order to refine and understand what are the biological mechanisms of leadership. Well, if you look at people without those abilities, then they can serve as a representative model for what leaders should look like as well. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different ways that you can kind of test a specific hypothesis or a specific theory that you may have about the neurobiology of leadership. I see that. As we all know, the frontal lobe is the biggest part of the brain that helps identify us as humans, right? Like the frontal lobe, it plays a lot of roles. Uh, Decision making, empathy, planning. So my question here was, why don't you just automatically get all of the above? You have a frontal lobe and your your CEOs and leaders, executives, they're great decision makers. They they're great planners. They're great, you know, they're great at strategy. So why right. don't you just get the whole package at the same time? Empathy and social yeah. awareness and self-reflection. Right, because uh, those are all those are all features that are characterized by the frontal lobes, right? Right. I think it's because, you know, no brain region acts in isolation. No brain region is an island. You know, the brain is a gigantic network. And even though you can have a single region of the brain that's involved in a specific function, it's or involved in multiple functions, it could be involved in both empathy and decision making. How it does its job isn't just dependent on how it works in isolation, but how it works with other brain regions. It's an emerging trend in neuroscience, not just studying a single brain region, but being able to understand and appreciate a brain region as being part of a larger network. So network neuroscience is very important now, being able to understand how these several different networks that exist in the brain kind of come together to assist in a specific function. It may explain why some leaders are really good decision makers, but not really good at reading, you know, having uh, emotional awareness or empathy, even though similar regions of the brain serve both of those functions. It could be because that region of the brain in those types of leaders is very good at decision making and very good at talking to other regions of the brain under those demands, but empathy and social awareness type situations may not work as well. So it's kind of a, a, a moving target in neuroscience, but certainly understanding how a brain region communicates with other brain regions is is important in understanding how those networks come together in, uh, in, in leadership. One of the challenges though in studying leaders and kind of doing these types of experiments is that a lot of the data, you know, if we were to look at a group of leaders and we wanted to ask the question, what's, what's unique in this individual's brain? What is it about this person's brain that makes them a good leader? Is that by that stage, they're already a leader. So the data that we're collecting would be after the fact or ex post facto. It's actually an issue that we deal with in clinical neuroscience. So if you look at somebody who's a leader and you see differences and changes in their brain networks, you don't necessarily know if it's the result of them being a leader or if it was some sort of underlying predisposing factor that made them a leader. It's kind of a chicken or egg. egg. Yeah, exactly. So you don't know if they were born that way and you know that, that horsepower and those mechanisms were, were inherent and innate and had them become a leader. 
or if those changes in the brain were the result of them taking on leadership roles. Because one of the things we know about the nervous system is that it's highly plastic. The brain will change constantly under different circumstances, will grow new connections and reorganize all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be really difficult, you know, in the same way that if you study somebody, a patient with schizophrenia, by that point they already have the condition. One of the challenges in understanding the neurobiology of leadership is that if you scan a leader, they already have, and you identify differences, they're already, you know, they're already in that leadership role. So you don't know how much of it is due to the changes or how much of it is innate and predisposing. What Something that is really real here, and I'm not going to get so peachy and rosy, but depression, anxiety, and burnout is real. And it does happen to us as leaders, executives, directors, and uh, in us in these very high responsible positions. Mm-hmm. Now, when th- this happens, depression, anxiety, burnout, one, it definitely happens to all of us. And two, that it does affect the frontal lobe function, the cognitive function. So this must be affecting leadership. Yeah, absolutely. We would think so because stress certainly does affect affect the central nervous system. You know, the release of uh, things like cortisol in the body. Many studies have shown that cortisol can be potentially damaging to the, the structure and function of the body and certainly the physiology of the central nervous system. Just being exposed to stress, there's a lot of animal studies that show that exposure to stress can uh, impede uh, connections, specifically in the frontal lobe, specifically in the parts of the brain that would be involved in decision-making abilities, the parts of the brain that we think would be imperative and critical to being a good leader. And so when we think of what makes a good leader, a lot of what we think about is people who can handle stress well. And I use, I use air quotes there because people who can handle stress well, uh, by our definitions, our current definitions, are people who can work 20-hour days and you know, <laughs> be able to show up the next day. Right? Right. That's, that's, that's somebody who handles stress well, is that they basically survive you know, those 20-hour work days. Cortisol, cortisol doesn't care if you survive a 20-hour work day or not. Cortisol and, and these stress responses, they're going to damage the body whether you show up to work the next day or not. They don't care about how much money the company makes. You're still going to produce demonstrable deficits and impairments in the body, specifically in the central nervous system. So what we don't know just yet and we haven't been able to observe is that this type of stress can cause changes in the brain that are then related to impairments in function. But a lot of what we understand about how the brain works, how stress responses affect and damage the central nervous system, uh, and, and kind of how that all comes together uh, using different models, during, using animal models and non-invasive neuroimaging models would lead us to believe that a you know a leader who's under a lot of stress is going to be damaging the parts of the brain that are critical for their job. And things like burnout, uh, you know, will certainly you know will have uh, effects on the psychology of the individual and resulting effects on the brain, and the brain doesn't bounce back so easily. So I think cycling back to this idea of redefining what a good leader is and what makes a good leader, I think a good leader isn't one who can handle stress with respect to working those 20-hour days, but establish some sort of balance with respect to stress that they're not actually damaging their nervous system because they're actually doing themselves a disservice in doing so. They're actually damaging the parts of the brain 
and you know what they need, their tools that they need to do the job. We're performing, and our performance is measured by the investments that we're earning and the companies that we're building and the way that we're scaling and the way that we're going to market and disrupting markets and envisioning a company's direction. But we are starting to have this discussion here that leadership can be something that is more diverse than that, not just applied in that form, but more diverse in the sense of also self-awareness, empathy, and as well as managing one's stress and managing one's cortisol levels, which can be done by so many different ways, uh, like the relaxation techniques or basically a more balanced person, which leads me to my next question. How do we make this idea of a more positive and balanced leader, how do we scale this idea? One really important way to do that is to is to kind of educate the public. One of the things I love doing as part of my job is being able to tell people about how the brain works, like, you know, on today's show, you know, because everybody loves hearing about the brain and understanding the psychology and the biology of the brain. And I think if, you, as we expand our definition of the biology of leadership and how uh, certain leadership qualities can affect the brain and how certain brain abilities can you know, dictate and drive whether or not you're a good leader. Uh, I think that's going to be important in, in kind of education and letting the public know about how all that works in order to get it to catch fire and, and, you know, and take off, you know, in order to redefine this idea of what makes a good leader and to make that more positive and to make that more holistic and to introduce, as you said, balance. You know, the brain is all about balance. It's all about establishing neurophysiological balance. And and people have the ability to drive that balance through their activities, through their daily living, and that's going to be very important. So I think we need to step back again and kind of expand what we mean by being a good leader. And part of that definition is going to be, you know, how does the brain play a role in all of that? How, do the, how does the function of the brain and maintaining uh, and balancing the function of the brain play a role in all of that? And I think once we step away from you know, the definition of a good leader just being somebody who's productive and move towards the definition of a good leader being somebody who has empathy, somebody who has social awareness, somebody who manages stress well so that they don't damage the hardware that they have to make good decisions in the first place and generate that definition from these these neuroscience-based models of how behavior works and how leadership works. I think that kind of education of the public and information that gets out there is really going to excite people and really kind of change this definition, really establish what we mean by Executive Leader 2.0. Executive Leader 2.0, what an amazing idea. I love that idea. <laughs> Essentially a better executive leader is what we want. Right? Yeah, a different definition of what is leadership. Exactly. Yeah. I think executive brain platform is specifically built on this vision that we can expand the idea of leadership and we can have people understand that there is another form of leadership that can exist, even in our cutting edge, capitalistic, innovative society. I think it's still possible. This executive leader 2.0, the holistic executive leader. Exactly. So I'm very, very proud to have you on board, have you here as a guest on Executive Brain. I thank you so much for being here. 
Very cool. Thanks, man. This was, this was a lot of fun. Lakeman is the chief scientist at the Biomagnetic Imaging Lab at UCSF. He is highly interested in hearing from leaders who want to implement neuroscience in their businesses, whether that be performance, efficiency, satisfaction, or management. The description of this podcast has all of Leighton's details and how you can get a hold of him. Reach out to me through Facebook or Twitter. Just search Executive Brain. Please subscribe and drop a note. If you are interested in my coaching services, go to www.executivebrain.com. That's executive-brain.com. There you can find more information about Executive Brain and get a hold of me directly as well. I sincerely hope this segment is giving more perspective about how to be a better leader, and I hope you stay with us since more segments are coming up. The series Millennials vs. Pioneers is one where millennials share their accounts of penetrating into the mid-level management and executive suites. And Executives in Motion is a series where we speak to physical trainers and strength and conditioning experts who work with executives who train, run marathons, or just stay active to stay healthy. Stay with us for the discussion on building better executive leadership. Be good.